I'd like to invite you to open your Bible to Ezra chapters 9 and 10 will be our text for this morning. The book of Ezra chapters 9 and 10. The last month we've been looking at this book and this morning we'll come to the conclusion of our study in this book. We're going to look at both of these chapters, but I want to only read chapter 9 for the sake of time this morning. So if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's holy word. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands, but their abominations from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God saying, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt, and for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now... For a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us His steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved, and have given us such a remnant as this, Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? 
Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any escape to us? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we ask that You would open Your Word to us and open us to Your Word. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Please be seated. We tell our children and grandchildren not to follow the crowd. Right? We don't want them to give in to peer pressure. We don't want them to do what everybody else is doing just because it's a popular... I heard 10,000 times as a kid, if everybody else jumps off a bridge, would you jump too? You know, we say that kind of thing because we don't want kids to follow the crowd. But I want you to think about something. Adults can be just as guilty. We break the same little rules that everybody else does because we think it's no big deal. We laugh at the dirty jokes because we don't want to get rid. We spend our money the same way the world does. On the outside, our priorities look very much the same as everybody else. And even though we caution our children about peer pressure, we can be no different than them. And here's what it comes down to. We all want to fit in, don't we? We all want to fit in. We don't want to be the oddball. Nobody likes to be the odd man out. We don't want to be the one everybody makes fun of because he's different or because she's different. Because we don't fit in. But sometimes fitting in is not good. Sometimes fitting in is not where we ought to be. You see, as Christians, God hasn't designed us to fit in, but to stand out. But here's the reality. It's hard. It's hard to be different from the rest of the world. It's hard to stand out from the crowd. To be isolated. But that's what God called us to. As we look at this Scripture this morning, I want to remind you briefly of what's going on. The book of Ezra is about the Jews who have been taken into captivity into Babylon. After 70 years, God finally allows them, under the leadership of King Cyrus of Persia, He finally allows them to come back to their homeland, to Judea, to the city of Jerusalem, to begin to rebuild the temple. And that's what we've seen in Ezra. Through Zerubbabel, the people have begun to rebuild the temple. We saw last week in chapter 8 how under Ezra's leadership, worship is reestablished in the temple. So that's the setting of these chapters we're looking at this morning. The, the, there's only a few, but some of the Jews have come out of captivity in Babylon. They've come back to their homeland, back to Jerusalem. The temple's being rebuilt. Worship is being reestablished. So God has blessed these people. They were taken into slavery because of their great sin, their great guilt and unfaithfulness to God. God has been merciful after 70 years of captivity. And while they're still technically slaves, they're still technically under the authority of the king of Persia, God has allowed them to come home. 
live in their homeland, rebuild their temple, reestablish worship according to the way God had ordered them to worship. Ezra has now established worship. He's seeking to teach the people to live as the distinct, set-apart, holy people of God. But what Ezra finds out is that already the people have begun to blend in with the pagan culture. In other words, even though the law of God given to them through Moses in the book of Exodus, that law is designed to help God's people to be distinct, set apart, right? Obeying the law would make them different from the rest of the world. But they were already compromising again. The very thing that had gotten them sent into captivity to start with, they had already begun again to fit in with the rest of the nations around them. They had already begun to compromise. You know what? Let's be honest. It would be easier for us if we just accepted the moral standards of the culture around us. Wouldn't it? Would it be easier? It would be easier for us to accept the philosophies and viewpoints of secular culture. It would be easy for us just to do our best to fit in. We'd get along in the world a lot easier. But God hasn't called us to fit in, but to stand out. And this is what God's Word teaches us this morning. So let's notice several things about the text. Here's the first thing I want to show you. God's requirement is distinctiveness. God's requirement is distinctiveness. We see this in the very first two verses. Here's the problem with the people. Intermarriage. Verse 1, the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, for they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons. Intermarriage. Here, this is not a racial issue. It's a religious issue. It had nothing to do with the race of the nations around them. That's not why they weren't supposed to intermarry. It was because the religion of the other nations had nothing to do with the color of their skin or their nationality. It had everything to do with their pagan religion. God's people were not supposed to marry those who are steeped in pagan false religions. Places like Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 7 God specifically ordered His people not to intermarry with people from pagan nations because their religions and practices would begin to seep into the community of God's people. So they were supposed to separate themselves from people who practice false religions. And as verse 1 says, they had failed to separate themselves from the abominations of the people. You see, what happened is, intermarrying with people of false religions brought the practices of those false religions into 
the families of God's people. So now God's people are beginning to observe practices of false religions. They're beginning to worship false gods. Verse 2 gets at the heart of the problem. Look what it says. The holy race has mixed itself with the people of the lands. The holy race has mixed itself with the people of the land. What does it mean, the holy race? The Jews were specifically chosen by God to be His holy people. The word holy means distinct. It means set apart. It means other than. In other words, God Himself is holy. That means God is not like humans. There is nothing immoral or unholy or unethical, nothing evil or tarnished or impure about God. He is totally separate from human beings. Distinct. Set apart. That's what the word holy means. God's people were given the law so that they too could be holy. Like God is holy. In other words, they are supposed to reflect God's character. God is holy and His people were supposed to live in such a way that reflected His holiness. Bottom line, God is different from humans and God's people are supposed to look like He does. They're supposed to reflect God's goodness and God's purity and God's holiness in their character. You with me? God's people were to be holy. They were to be different than everybody else in the world in that they are to look more like God than they did sinful humanity. They are to reflect His character to the fallen world around. Now, but when God's people started to marry these people of false religions, they started to adopt these sinful practices. Pretty soon, God's people are not holy anymore. In other words, they're doing the same things everybody else is doing. They look the same way everybody else looks. They have the same priorities, the same practices. They have lost their distinctiveness. They've lost their identity as God's people. Can I tell you something this morning? If we display the character and nature of God in our society, we will be different. If we as God's people reflect His purity, His values, His morals, if we live according to His truth in this society, we will be very different from the vast majority of society. We're going to look different. We're going to talk different. We're going to think different. We're going to act different. We'll live right in the middle of society, but we're going to stand out in many, many ways if we truly reflect the character of God. But you see, when we embrace the morals and the values of the culture at large, we lose our distinctiveness as God's people. When we adopt the priorities of a sinful culture, we lose our distinctiveness. When our families are no different, when the way we talk and the way we dress is no different, we lose our distinctiveness. 
Listen, we are called to live in the midst of an unholy society. But we are called to be a holy people living in an unholy society. We are to maintain our distinctiveness. You've heard the phrase, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. We're to live in an unholy world reflecting the holiness of our God. And when we lose that distinctiveness, that is sin. Three times in this text, God's people's actions, what they did, losing their distinctiveness, it's referred to as faithlessness. You see it in verse 2. And in this faithlessness. You see it again in verse 4. All who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles. Chapter 10, verse 6. He was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. What does he mean, the faithlessness? It means a breach of faith. In other words, in doing what they did, they were forsaking their faith in God. They were breaking faith with God. Being faithless. Not acting according to the guidelines and the laws given by God. Forsaking our faith. Here's, here's the idea. I want you to get this in your mind. When you adopt the world's ways over God's ways, you are forsaking your faith. You're abandoning your faith. To conform to the ways and the values and the viewpoints and the philosophies of society, rather than conforming to the Bible, is to forsake your faith. You lose the distinctiveness that sets you apart as a child of God. And to do that is sin. So God's requirement is distinctiveness. Now, the second thing I want to show you in this text is God's provision. God's provision is grace. We see this in verses 3 to the rest of the chapter 9. Now, we see twice in this chapter it says Ezra was appalled. You see it in verse 4. I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. It says that another time in this text. Ezra was appalled. You see in verse 5, look at his actions. At the evening sacrifice, I rose from fasting, my garments and my cloak torn. Those are signs of mourning. I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord God. Oh my God, I am ashamed. He's broken hearted. You see it? Our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. Listen, God's people have been in captivity because of their long history of sinfulness. God had given them over to their enemies. Their cities had been laid waste. Many, many of the Jews died. Their goods were plundered. They spent 70 years in captivity. Look at verse 8 of chapter 10. But now, after all of that, now, for a brief moment, favor 
has been shown by the Lord our God. You could say grace. It's the same word. To leave us a remnant. To give us a secure hole within His holy place. That our God may brighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us His steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God to repair its ruins, to give us protection in Judea and in Jerusalem. In other words, in spite of Israel's rebellion, in spite of Israel's sin, God granted them some reviving, it says twice. The word means to preserve or to give life. In other words, God was once again giving His people life and hope after their time of captivity and slavery and bondage. He's giving them life and hope again. He brings them back from exile, back to Jerusalem. He, he gives them favor with the king so they can rebuild the temple. Their sin is great, but He's shown them favor. He's shown them grace. And see, that's what makes Ezra so grieved. Such great love from God, such great grace from God should call God's people to obedience and holiness. Look at verse 13. After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds, for our great guilt, seeing that you, have, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the people who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with this, us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any escape? He says, in light of how good you've been to us, how could we go back to the same sin? Could we respond to your grace and steadfast love by once again failing to be the distinct holy people that you have called us to be? And what Ezra is saying, God, we have no excuse for this. We have no excuse this. Here's what I need you to see. Don't miss this. In spite of God's goodness toward His people, they simply could not maintain the distinctiveness that God required. On their own, the people simply could never be holy. And don't miss this. Neither can we. You would think, as good as God would been to, had been to them, when they came back to the land, they wouldn't fall into the same old mistakes and sins and disobedience again. You would think they would finally walk in God's law and be the holy people He called them to be. But they didn't. The question is why? Why? Because they couldn't. And neither can you. Neither can I. Neither can we. So where does that leave us? God requires us to be holy and distinct, separate from the world, but on our own we can never maintain such a status. Look at verse 15. O Lord, the God of Israel, You are just for we are left a remnant that has escaped 
as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. God requires us to be holy. We fail over and over to be holy. Where does that leave us? It leaves us guilty. It leaves us in our guilt before God. What is Ezra doing here? I need you to catch this. He is confessing the sin of God's people. And he's looking to God for grace. The grace of God that he had shown his people by bringing them out of slavery back to Jerusalem. The grace of God bringing them out of bondage. Listen, that grace was just a foreshadowing of the grace that God would pour out on his people through Jesus. Don't, don't miss this. In verses 3 through 15 of chapter 9, there are two things that become prominent. One, we are a hopelessly sinful God. Excuse me. We are a hopelessly sinful people. Two, God is an overwhelmingly good and gracious God. That's the two lessons that jump out. We are hopelessly sinful. God is infinitely gracious. Now, I want you to think about this. It is from those two realities that the grace of God is born. God's infinite goodness and our infinite wickedness, those two come together and that's where God's grace is born. When the goodness of God meets the sinfulness of man, grace don't you understand the sinfulness of man and the goodness of God is what led to the cross? Don't you get it? Why, did, why the cross? Because man is infinitely sinful and God is infinitely good. Those two realities. The cross is where the goodness of God and the sinfulness of man meet. It's where grace is born. So when we come to the place that we acknowledge our utter inability to be holy in our own strength, that's the best place to be because then we're in a place to receive God's grace in Christ. What you realize when you read chapter 9 of Ezra is that the only hope for God's people is God's grace. When you read Ezra's words, Ezra's like, he's like, God, we just can't get it right. We deserve whatever you do to us. He's, he's just to the place, God, whatever you do, we, we, all we can do is beg for mercy. And listen, that's the place where we have to get to. You've got to get beyond the place where I'll just try harder, I'll just try harder you got to get to the place that you understand that your only hope is the grace of God in Jesus. And let me try to bring this together for you. God's requirement for His people is distinctiveness. The only way that requirement can ever be met is by grace. On your own, you can never do it. And that's exactly why God sent His Son, Jesus. 
Christ met all of God's requirements on my behalf. Christ was perfectly holy. He was perfectly distinct. He did perfectly reflect the character and nature of God. And He did it on my behalf. And on your behalf. That's grace. And now, by His transforming power in us, by His Spirit, He is making us into people who can actually be distinct. Why? Because we're no longer dependent on our own strength. Now we have the Spirit of God alive on the inside of us. We have a power and an ability that we didn't have before. You understand? God is the only one who can live holy. So what did God do to help us be holy? God took up residence in us. Does that make sense? We couldn't do it, so God just moved in. So He could do it through us. That's grace. He forgave us our inability to live holy, and He empowered us by His own Spirit so that we could live holy, even though this side of eternity it is still imperfect. I need to show you one more thing through this text. and God's desire for repentance. Repentance plays a role in this whole process. God requires us to be distinctive. In order for us to be distinctive, He provides grace. Our task then is repentance. Here's the question. What is our response to the grace of God that has been offered to you and I in Jesus? How does God want us to respond? Well, the answer is repentance. Here's where we come to chapter 10. We see this in the first 17 verses. Now, there are two elements to repentance that show up in chapter 10. The first is confession of sin. Look in chapter 10, verse 2. Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. What's that? That's confession of sin. That's where you and I acknowledge our guilt before God. Second, there's another part of repentance, not just a confession of sin, but the commitment to change. Look at verse 3. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. Let it be done according to the law. In other words, he says we are guilty. Let us commit ourselves to change, to correct our sinful behavior change the direction of our lives. These are the two aspects of repentance. If you're to read the rest of chapter 10, what you see is those two things played out. In other words, you see how it happened. You see how Ezra got involved with the people, led them through the confession of their sin, and he led them in a process of one family at a time, correcting their sinful behavior. What chapter 10 displays, I don't have time to walk through all of it, but it shows us what the repentance looked 
like. Look at verses 10 and 11. Chapter 10. As the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, so increase the guilt of Israel. Now then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do His will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. As the, there's the picture. Repentance. Confess your sin. Separate yourself from your sin. Now, often as Christians, we talk about repentance as part of the initial process whereby we turn to Christ in faith. In other words, when we get saved, we come to Christ by faith and repentance. That's how you get saved. You repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus. But understand, that's a very small picture of repentance in the Bible. Repentance for the Christian is a lifestyle. It's an ongoing process in the life of the believer. Acknowledging our sin and turning to God for His grace is not just something we did to get into the kingdom. It's the way we live life in the kingdom. Confession and repentance is a daily, even moment by moment, responsibility of every believer. That's part of the reason why every Sunday we say a prayer of confession together. When we come into God's presence, we have to acknowledge that we are still a sinful people even though we've been redeemed and forgiven. We still are to be in the habit of living lives where we acknowledge our fallenness and we look to God for the strength to change. Repentance is confession and the commitment to change. Listen, we don't respond to sin in our lives by just trying harder. Yes, it takes effort to repent of sins. Listen, but this is so important. I wish you'd get this. As Christians, when we sin, we look to God for His grace. We don't look to ourselves. I just got to try harder. I just got to try harder. No, we look to God for grace in two ways. We look to, the, to God's grace for the forgiveness of that sin and we look to God's grace for the strength to change. Do you understand? It's never by your willpower you're going to get it right. My Lord, ain't you old enough to have figured that out by now? That in your own willpower, you're just not going to be able to get it right? You look to God for grace. God, this is what I've done. I've sinned against you. I claim the promise of 1 John 1, nine. Those who confess their sin, you're faithful and just to forgive. God, but I need not only the grace of your forgiveness, I need your grace so that I can change on my own, I don't have the strength. I can't do it. I pray that by Your grace, You would strengthen me through Your Spirit and enable me to turn away from this sin and to change. Are you with me? We look to and rely on the grace of God for forgiveness and change. How do we become the holy people of God, the distinct people of God we're supposed to? That's how. By looking to God in our time of sin for the grace to forgive and the grace to change. It's repentance. 
That's how you and I become the distinct holy people of God we're supposed to. Listen, our best efforts are never going to produce holiness. That's why our only hope is to turn to Christ and repentance and receive the grace of God. You should be aware of something. Never in the history of our nation has there been a greater distance between the beliefs and values of society and the beliefs and values of Scripture. In other words, the gap between what the world believes and practices and what the Bible teaches is as wide in this nation as it's ever been. You with me? And the gap is ever widening. Think about it. As abortion becomes more and more acceptable, the gap widens. As homosexuality becomes more and more normal in our society, the gap between society and the people of God widens. As pornography and filth reign on television and internet, the gap widens. As the influence of government increases and the influence of church decreases, that gap widens. Listen, the pressure for Christians in our society to try and fit in has never been greater because the consequences of standing out have never been greater. And it's not going to get easier anytime soon. But be that as it may, God has called us who profess Christ as Lord and Savior. He has called us to be distinct, to be different, to reflect His holiness in this wicked world. God has called us to shine as lights in this dark world. But listen, if we rely on our own strength, if we rely on our own resolve, if we rely on our own selves, we will fail. We can't be distinct on our own. Yet hope remains because of God's grace. By God's grace, there is hope that we can be in this world and not be of this world. By God's grace, there is hope that we can stand out instead of fitting in. By God's grace, there is hope that we can be in the midst of society and still be distinct from society. On our own, we can't. But by the grace of God given to us in Jesus, we can. So, here's what I want to ask you to do. I want you to look at your own self. Look at your own heart. Look at your own life. Ask God to show you. Where am I fitting in when I should be standing out? Where have I accepted the beliefs and viewpoints of the world and should be holding to the beliefs and viewpoints of the Bible? Where have I compromised in order to make life easier? Where am I not being holy? And when you see where you have failed to be distinct as the people of God, be zealous, repent, and receive the grace of God. The grace to forgive and the grace to change.
Let's pray.